You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hello. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We're back after a week-long break. My apologies to anyone who was expecting a new episode last week but did not receive one in their feed. I'm hoping this one will make up for it. Before I get into this week's conversation, I wanted to share some exciting news on my end. As I've mentioned before, in addition to being a teacher and a podcast host, I'm also a poet, and I have a new poem that was published by the folks at APT, that's A-P-T, which is a wonderful online and print literary magazine. If you're interested in checking that out, I've left a link in the show description, so feel free to give that a read. Okay, I'm really excited about this week's conversation, which features Russell Weatherspoon, a religion teacher at Phillips Exeter Academy. As I mentioned in our last episode, I teach in the summer program here at Exeter, and Russell is something of a staple at the school, so it was awesome to be able to catch up with him. Russell and I discuss his transition from being a firefighter to being an educator, as well as some of the differences, both obvious and not, between the two professions. We discuss how Russell translates his constant awe of the mystery of life to what he does in the classroom, and we talk about how important it is to take the time to try and experience life as our students know it in concrete and meaningful ways. If you enjoy this week's episode, please take a second to rate Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and maybe take another few seconds to write a quick review and say what you're enjoying about the podcast. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Russell. Hi, Russell. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, John, for having me. Of course, of course. To have you begin, what I'd like to have you do is go back to the first day of school. By that, I mean um, I'd like you to revisit, to the extent that you can, your first day of full-time teaching, remembering what you can from that experience, um, as little or as much as, as you are able to do. Uh, I'm curious about like how you felt, like what jumped out at you and from, from that moment or from those moments. Um, really, anything is, is totally fair game. By full-time teaching, you're discounting, for instance, days spent student teaching. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I guess for different people, it means it means different things. But yeah, like I guess when you have like your own classroom that you're sort of taking charge of and you're you're running like for yourself. I can't remember that day with any precision. I would expect that when I went in, I had all of the excitement of the first day of kindergarten or the first day of um, junior high school or the first day of high school. Um but I don't remember um, what the room was. I remember the school, uh, but I can't remember um, the students uh, or whether I was teaching an English course or whether I was teaching a Bible course, which would have been in the school that I was in. But I remember this much. I was um, glad, happy, excited, uh, full of the awareness that I didn't really know what I was doing and trusting I would learn as I went. Did that turn out to be the case as you went along, like in terms of thinking about your first year or first few years, that kind of those early stages of teaching? 
Yes, what, what I learned, and it took uh, a few cycles to learn it, that to my way of thinking, you have to be at a school and go through the rhythm of that school at least two full years, or preferably three full years, before you really have a grasp on how the courses work, on what their, what their tempo is, of what the tempo of the year is, of what students are like at different times during the year. Um, I didn't know any of that at the start, but after I'd been through it a few times, I began to see some patterns, and that helped me uh, calm down uh, and, frankly, be happier. Yeah, that makes sense. What was your first teaching position or full-time teaching position? I was teaching at a school on Long Island in a town called Stony Brook in a school with the same name. It was called the Stony Brook School. And I came there as a teacher of uh, English and also of Bible. Gotcha, gotcha. How long were you at that school for? Collectively, I was there a decade, although I was there in a six-year installment and then went away and then came back and did another four years. At what point did you feel like you began to gain some sense of comfort and momentum? Like, I think it's kind of a cliche that people will say, like, your first few years of teaching are always going to be kind of hard and in some cases terrible, and you're going to feel like you don't know what you're doing, and you're constantly drowning. And then somewhere along the line, you start to settle into feeling like, oh, I'm I'm doing pretty well at this. Yeah, I think that three or four years in, I felt like I had grasped the rhythm, uh, that I was learning more about the students, or at least the kind of students that I was facing in that school. I had both uh, some middle school students, and I also had high school students to teach. Uh, In fact, I think that I started out with 8th grade students and with 10th grade students. So I was able to look um, at the difference uh, between those. I would put it this way. When an insect enters the room in spring, like heaven for a fend, a wasp or a bee, Mm -hmm. you're going to get a reaction from 8th graders, which is a little different than you're going to get from 10th graders. And to get to the place where one could recognize that certain things were somewhat predictable um, and that times of year, of course, made a big difference, that temperature especially humidity, uh, whether or not there was a dance in the wings, all of that made a huge difference uh, as to whether or not people wanted to pay attention to Shakespeare. Sure. Sure. There's a lot that goes into it and a lot that they're kind of dealing with and a lot of factors that go into it apart from the quality of your teaching, even though that's what we probably go back to um, at the end of the day. Um, I'm curious about the moment when you first realized that you wanted to be a teacher or an educator. Uh, That came relatively late. The thing that I had been spending most of my life thinking about actually was uh, being a firefighter, which uh, I was in two communities. Um, Being a teacher uh, didn't strike me uh, straight off as something for me to do. Uh, I knew that given the education that I had, that it was something I could do, but I wasn't focused on it. Uh, I came to it in my thinking um, relatively late. That is to say, I was in the junior year of college when the uh, college in the fall semester indicated that 
if any of us were interested in taking an abbreviated course in education that would prepare us for teaching in the New York City um, public school system, that they had just inaugurated uh, a new program, uh, which instead of having to begin that somewhere in the sophomore year of college, they were willing to say, uh, if you will take this abbreviated program, you will only have to do three terms uh, worth of work. So I thought, well, let me uh, let me do that just in case uh, I would like to become a teacher or work mm. in teaching, uh, particularly if I don't go into the fire department of the city of New York. Um, so I came into teaching not thinking about that as the as the first passion of my life. Wow. When did it become the passion of your life or a passion in your life? It became a passion uh, in my life while I was in that first job and began to discover, uh, it too was a boarding school, uh, began to discover that the, the total life of the community of that school was very in, engrossing. Uh, among the things I liked the most was uh, being present with students more hours of the day so that it wasn't simply what was going on in the classroom, but rather what was going on in all aspects of school life, the, the dormitory, the sports teams, the, uh, the arts programs, uh, the concerts and plays and uh, special uh, projects and the like that uh, seemed to go on endlessly. Through all of those uh, events, one got to know students in a, in a very broad way. Um, you could meet them in any of those arenas and see different sides of them. And to me, being able to be present with them in so many different circumstances and to be able to encourage them in their lives, I discovered that that was actually very satisfying. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned that while you were trained to be a firefighter I and mean, while you were a firefighter, you, you, you thought back to the fact that your education you felt had in some sense prepared you like to be a teacher and an educator. What, what do you mean by that exactly? Uh, what I mean is that uh, in the stream of things when I was in college, this, as I said, this opportunity came to um, get a certificate which would enable me to teach in the city of New York, which actually was my plan. Mm, and I student gotcha. taught at my alma mater, uh, which is Brooklyn Tech uh, in downtown Brooklyn. Indeed, if I had remained in the city of New York, I would have uh, begun my professional teaching life uh, at that school. Right. Um, at that same moment, the, uh, the, the city was getting closer and closer to teetering on the brink of receivership. It didn't ever go over that particular precipice, but it got very close. Mm -hmm. And so they began to lay a lot of uh, city workers of all kinds off. And it seemed to me that the handwriting on the wall was that if I either went into uh, the New York City Board of Education or if I went into the New York City Fire Department, I might very well be without a job within uh, months. Right. Uh, this opportunity opened up to be part of a school that I had actually never heard of or considered before, a boarding school. Mm -hmm. um, when I got out to that community, I not only joined the faculty and got engrossed in the life of that school, I also joined the fire department. So actually, oh. I was serving 
uh, in the fire department of that town and also teaching and coaching and being a dorm head at this school simultaneously. Did you enjoy being a firefighter? It sounds oh, like it. No, very much. Um, uh, I think that both of those things are uh, examples of what we broadly call the helping professions. Mm. Um, the, the, the thing that was that I particularly liked about um, firefighting, uh, which also involved uh, providing ambulance service and some rescue service as well. Uh, the thing I liked about it was that when an emergency uh, came along, uh, people would pick up the phone and call 911 or, or call our station directly. Uh, we would show up and pretty much 99.999% of the time, uh, the people who had called you understood that once you arrived, they needed to step out of the way and let you do your thing. They tended not to uh, stand around and give advice. Um, right. Uh, so that the help that you gave, it was obvious uh, to the caller that you were answering indeed that call. Mm -hmm. uh, teaching is more subtle. Uh, you are trying to help students, um, colleagues, others. Um, and sometimes you can even get into debates about, well, you get into a lot of debates about the nature of help um, mm -hmm. and the, the nature of, of the whole job and its many aspects. Uh, and those turn into sometimes very prolonged debates, which go on, right. of course, for months and years. Um, so as I say, one of the things I have always loved about fire department, uh, firefighting rather, uh, is that you don't get entangled in those debates, especially when <laughs> right. there's something that needs to be done. Uh, if I can speak a little bit more broadly philosophically, uh, I, I also liked um, the idea of, or at least the sentiment that runs through much of the fire service. Um, it actually is a citation from the Gospel of John. Um, I think it's the Gospel of John. Um, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Mm, I know um, it well. Uh, and that idea of conscious service uh, to other people, uh, is something that I like in in both uh, lines of work. My present school, uh, Phillips Exeter, has a uh, has one motto among several, which I think touches on this when they say "non sibi" or "not for oneself." Hmm. I love that. Oh, that's so interesting. And I didn't think that this conversation would get into the comparisons or the similarities between firefighting and and education. But I guess there's a a lot of interesting overlap there. Yeah, we had a one. We have a wonderful um, program here at the academy called uh, Meditation, where faculty members for two thirds of the year and then seniors uh, for one third of the year uh, will get up once a week and, and deliver meditations on some aspect of their lives or thought. And the first meditation I ever gave uh, began with this sentence: uh, "Teaching is the second best thing." that I could think of to do with my life. And I remember when I uttered that, uh, I could see that there were a number of people who found that to be an utterly surprising. <laughs> the surprising that it was the second best? They said exactly. it was just the second best? Yeah. Exactly. Did you go on to say that firefighting, oh, yeah. or did you just, exactly. did you just let it hang? Exactly, my next sentence. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I identified um, 
I identified firefighting as the uh, is actually the uh, the most important thing. Uh, right. And that that did not erase the confusion on people's faces. Yes, I can. <laughs> I can imagine it would not. Definitely a good conversation starter. Um, I'd love to go back a little bit further and and um, talk a little bit about what you were like as a student. Now, for this, you can go back as as far as as you'd like. People tend to begin in high school, but for some people, it makes sense to go back further to to middle school or even elementary school. But yeah, I'm curious about what you were like as as a student, as a learner, both in the academic sense, the the social sense, sort of whatever comes to mind. Yeah, I. Uh, school was, um, to me, uh, a pleasant enough thing. Um, uh, I think there were there were good books to read. Um, there were great musicals and plays to be part of. Uh, there was uh, good fun during recess. Periodically, there could be really interesting things um, that one could learn in a classroom. I set those aside from most of the uh, uh, necessary forward rote of education, which is frankly um, mostly what I remember education for. Um, I, I, I took schooling as something uh, that we do because we're required to do it. Um, it also struck me that it was a, a way of um, sometimes even segregating people by uh, ability, uh, which had uh, large social power, uh, both in the school and sometimes outside of it. Uh, I liked school um, in the broad way. I was not knocking myself out um, to do homework thoroughly. I was not trying to get um, high grades. I was really just... um, I was there for the most interesting bits, if I may put it that way. Right. On the other hand, um, I discovered maybe maybe in the second grade, um, I had an experience which um, which began to open my my mind not so much to school, but rather to ideas. I read a piece of doggerel verse by uh, Robert Louis Stevenson called rain. Uh, The poem went, the rain is raining all around. It falls on field and tree. It is raining on the umbrellas here and on the ships at sea. And in that instant of reading that poem, I had one of those uh, uh, revelations that human Hmm. beings have when suddenly and unexpectedly the mind opens up and and suddenly you're you're thousands and thousands of miles away um or you may be centuries away whether into the past or into the future or you're on the uh other side of the solar system (laughs) or somewhere beyond the galaxy and and it's not that you're thinking about those things but rather you're there yeah. Um, and so in the seconds that followed um, reading that poem, I found myself in a number of other places, beginning um, 
with a highway, which was just a few miles away from my elementary school, but which I could see from the window of the school. And in glancing out the window and seeing the cars going back and forth on that highway and uh, Jamaica Bay beyond it, I realized, oh my goodness, in every single one of those cars, there are people and they are living a different life. Right now, while I'm living this life in this classroom, they're going about completely different tasks and passions and the like. There are various ages. And then I began to think about the boats out in the bay and out in the ocean beyond and then around the world. And the enormity of the world came uh, sweeping in um, on me. And then after a while, I realized that all of that had happened to me because I had read this four-line doggerel verse. Right. Um, so uh, my interest began to focus more on those uh, moments of epiphany, uh, uh, less on the uh, what struck me as clearly the more march of uh, so many homework assignments and right. so many tests and and all the rest of that. Um, and I think that that just stayed that way um, through elementary school and certainly through um, through much of um, junior high school, which I enjoyed as well. Uh, when I got to high school, I, I was a little surprised to find myself in in, um, in this school, Brooklyn Tech, that you had to take an entrance exam to get into. I was surprised that I passed the exam and was in the school. Um, even though I wasn't thinking about becoming an engineer, here I was in this engineering high school. Uh, I pretty much, as far as school goes, uh, marched along in, in much that same way. But I was starting to have more and more of these remarkable moments, age appropriate, um, including two of the great moments of one sitting in a mathematics class and uh, out of the clear blue sky hearing the, the, the theory of limits in calculus. And when we got to that moment, when they, when they started illustrating what a limit was as it approached some value and how the the equation disappeared. Again, I had one of those just mind-bending or mind-emptying or mind-filling hmm. moments. Likewise, sitting in physics, which was not my uh, favorite course in which I wasn't paying a great deal of attention to, but when, <laughs> they, when they offered up the wave and uh, particle theory of light. And what was really ironic about that was that the teacher, the, the day before, he had said to us toward the end of class, well, you come back tomorrow and I will tell you something that will blow your mind. And I thought that that was a risky and foolish thing for him <laughs> to have done. I just thought that that was just silly. And we came back the next day and he laid this thing out um, showing evidence for um, for both theories being simultaneously true, and I just was just out of my mind. And that really, um, those kinds of experiences, I realized, is what I was really um, living for when it came to school. And the thing that kept me going in many respects was the awareness that um, if you... If I looked at a thing the right way, 
I might see that more often. Um, that somehow or another, this had something to do with me. Um, and I had to position myself uh, or try to position myself so I could see that stuff because it probably was all over the landscape if you just, you know, uh, opened your mind. Uh, but again, but, but qua school itself, um, I looked at school as mostly um, a series of um, exercises and things that the teachers and whatnot had to and take tasks you through. To complete. And they took you through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that having those formative experiences kind of sprinkled throughout, like in second grade with a poem or in your calculus class or your physics class, it, as, a, as a teacher, as an educator, it has probably, in your mind, reinforces the fact that like you have the opportunity to create and cultivate environments in which students hopefully experience similar breakthroughs, right? As opposed to just school serving as a series of tasks. And I'm sure it probably really informed the way that you the way that you teach. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate what I would call the mystery of the human being. Um, you know, some of it is, is uh, cognitive maturation. Some of it is experience. Some of it is the readiness of the heart. Uh, but you lay before uh, a student of any age some material from whatever subject it may be, whether it's the sciences or it's, or it's literature or whatever it is. You, you, you lay it before the student and you, you try to actually guess at what might be a way into this content that the student might begin to appreciate some of the enormous possibilities, uh, fragrances, uh, ways to go that might literally even change the person's life if they're staying in the right place. You lay this before them. But of course, it is, it is mystery because even in your own life, um, you can look at things, again, matters from the sciences, mathematics, literature, the rest. You can look at things um, multiple times um, and not see the glory there, much like you can look at people. You think a person thinks back to the, to the time when they discovered that they had fallen in love with someone. Most of the time, they will have spent time with that person before they fell in love. <laughs> and, and there's a mysterious moment when you, when you start to see the person in a different way. And if you were to turn to a friend and try to describe this new seeing, uh, they might turn to you and say fr that, frankly, they actually don't see what you see in that <laughs> right. person, which is certainly the heart and soul of being in love. Well, that, to me, that kind of mystery is, is, the, is the warp and woof of life. And that for the teacher... You, you try to lay before students, or you do lay before students, uh, whether they're math problems or they're, again, poetry or whatever it is. And to a certain degree, you, you do try to lead, you do try to ask good questions, and you do try to step back and, and just see. Um, sometimes, and this was, the, this was the thing that I actually loved the most in my first uh, four years of teaching, I will never forget the the first time I was teaching a poem, uh, 
And I had worked this poem out clearly in my mind and worked out what I was hoping the class would, would do and get from it. Uh, the class was uh, a 10th graders. I will never forget uh, the young woman who began to talk about the poem. She opened up at the level of understanding that I hoped that we would close at. <laughs> and then she did something much more wonderful. She dropped uh, two or three levels below that and with, with great ease and no haughtiness, and I'm pretty sure she was unaware of what she was doing, but she began to open this, the possibilities of this poem up beyond what I had recognized mm. uh, and frankly beyond what, um, what her classmates could see and her naturalness in just sharing all this was so good that they, in point of fact, began to see what she was talking about. And it was the first time uh, as a teacher um, that I had this visceral experience of watching what can happen in a classroom when another human being begins to share what they see. And it's, and it's more than what yeah. you've seen. Yeah. Those are the moments that we crave every single <laughs> every single day every single class period but unfortunately so so rarely get which can be very frustrating but that's amazing i love that so in 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 talking about what it looks like for those opportunities or for those experiences to take place for students and for students to experience those moments i'm curious in kind of taking a, a similar route but talking a little bit about the flip side of that which is uh, what it looks like when we fail our students. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about that either from a kind of a broad, like macro sense of how the system as a whole is failing students, or um, thinking out on it, think of thinking about it on a more micro sense of how we as individual teachers in individual classrooms fail our students, and and sort of what that looks like when when we fail our students or they're not being served as as well as as they should be by us. I think uh, among the many ways that can happen uh, is when we fail to understand uh, their cultural moment. Um, Mm. One of the most important ways uh, to enter the life and mind of any person, actually, is to understand uh, life as they see it uh, and life as it's experienced either A, by them, or being experienced by their age cohort. Um, it is always true that, that culture is changing and what's important uh, to various generations uh, changes. And we say to ourselves now that it, it changes very, very rapidly, so rapidly that it's uh, hard to keep up with. I'm, right. I'm assuming that that's true, and I base it on comparing music um, when I was a teenager's age, or rather when I was a teenager, with music now, mm. um, the, the, the channels through which and the media through which the young people both get, consume, understand, compare, uh, music, uh, the range is broader. Um, the issues that, that they will end up talking about are broader. Um, so that as a, as a teacher, part of the challenge is to try to actually come in on their frequency so that you know that you're talking about things that 
that are part of their moral universe and so that they're not being asked to only think about issues from some other time, uh, which can leave them wondering whether or not you as a teacher understand that actually there are serious moral moments uh, right now. Um, so then the, the, the teacher then needs to sit back and say, okay, well now, how do I enter that space um, with them? Uh, part of that is, is frankly asking them for more information about, frankly, the music that they listen to, the media they consume, the moral issues which are important to them and why. And to, you know, to fail to do that is to, in a sense, inadequately prepare them for being adults because you're the adult and you ought to be engaging them at that intersection. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you don't have to agree with them, but they, they need the powerful consolation of knowing that you know something about the issues that, that matter and that you're a good listener and you can help model uh, listening. And you can even do a good job of modeling disagreement. Right. Even, But to be ignorant of all of that, partly because um, either you're not up with the technology or you're not asking the questions or, you know, all that strikes me as a, as a kind of unfortunate death and failure. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that hard in a lot of ways, but it but it can feel that way. And I don't I don't know why that why that's the case. I wonder if some of it also comes from just the assumptions that we have in terms of like the boundaries that exist between educators as students. Um, in terms of like you know we inhabit one world and they inhabit another, and like those worlds just don't intersect in some aspects. Like we'll never understand why they listen to the music they listen to or why they care about the things that we or that the things that they care about. But you're right. I mean, we have to model what it's like to just have interest in them and pay attention to them and have that desire to understand. And I encounter this even as someone who, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, I'm someone who isn't that far removed from a lot of my students in terms of, you know, the type of music I listen to or the types of media that I take in or the issues that I care about. But I do feel that at some moments. And in those moments, I have the opportunity to kind of say, oh, whatever, I don't care about this, or I'll never fully understand, or to actually be curious. And I think it, I think they do notice that, and they do appreciate it. Yeah, I know. I have asked, um, sometimes for several consecutive terms, I've said to my students, look, uh, give me a list of, uh, of your 10 favorite songs. Mm. And they, they look at me with surprise, like, what are you <laughs> talking about? And I said, well, I, look, I, I realize to ask people for 10 is kind of ridiculous, because... Right. Nobody has just 10 favorite songs. <laughs> but, you know, just indulge me. And um, and when they do, I try to listen through these lists, these playlists. I'm partly looking for the songs that a lot of people uh, reference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking for songs that I uh, don't understand. And uh, in, in one of the courses that I teach here... Um, uh, religion and popular culture, uh, we will spend a couple of days l- not only listening to music, but also watching the attendant uh, videos, mm. which is an, sometimes an awkward moment for them because <laughs> they go, right, Miss Westman, do you really, are, are you sure you? Right. And I say, I think I can handle it. If, <laughs> if, I, if I have a stroke or a heart attack, you know what to do. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, but let's get in here and 
And then after listening to whatever it is, then we try to do a little, I was, I was about to say dissect, dissect's not the right word. Mm -hmm. I will try to ask them, okay, well, what is this, what does this part mean to you? And they will yeah. oftentimes say, well, I wouldn't live that way. But right, right, right. I, but I think that that way of talking about life is like really cool, even though yeah. I wouldn't do that. And I say to my, I guess you wouldn't, or otherwise you wouldn't be going to a school like this <laughs> for the risk averse. <laughs> <laughs> right. But they, yeah, it's, they so appreciate though, or many of them do appreciate that. Like it's giving their, what they like and what they do and what they think uh, a sense of validity. It validates them when. And, and, it, it, and it's hard, although I'll confess, it's much harder, much harder for me to, um, to binge watch the shows mm -hmm. that they're watching or to stay up on, um, on all the movies that, because that's, that's, a heck of a lot of time yes. on the clock. Yes, right. And the only time I can do anything like that is during a major vacation or mm -hmm. during parts of the summer. Although I will say that uh, if and when I can do that, um, and it's, it is some kind of serious surprising. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll give you one example. Three years after uh, Game of Thrones had begun mm. on television, I've been listening to students, you know, talk about this for a long time and right you know and i was like i am not watching this <laughs> too many names to remember oh uh, please <laughs> but then finally i during one vacation i i sat down and started watching the first three episodes and i have to say i mean i've been block watched a lot of movies and television over the years but but i was somewhat taken aback i was like wow um so this is this is this program storyline well, where all the all the good people, the people you honor and whatnot, are the people who get beheaded and right. Run. It's like, yow, like, yeah, like, what is going on with this? Uh, so I had to like do some serious readjusting uh, sure. of my whole self to work my way through the um, through all the episodes. But certainly, it enabled me to come back and just talk with them about it more broadly both from an entertainment point of view but also from a moral point of view right right it's a lot to that that's something you could definitely dissect quite a bit so i'd love to hear a little bit about any sort of piece of advice or thing that you have been something that you constantly remind yourself as an educator, um, either through the years or something you've been thinking about lately, but just some idea that you, that you come back to or something that you would potentially share with like a young educator or just really anyone who's looking to, to go into education or further themselves um, as an educator to some degree. Um, if, you want to, if you want to be a teacher, if you want to be an education, and, and I guess I should... Uh, recognize that there are there's education that goes on at many different levels. Um, I'm a I'm a high school teacher. Um, my teaching really has touched um, only into middle school, high school, uh, and a small amount in uh, undergraduate um, education. Uh, but the great bulk of it has been uh, with high school students and. They are the um, they are the band of humanity that I think about 
the most. Um, to, to me, we always have to take, I, I would say to a, a younger uh, teacher, I would say, um, take the long view. Always take the long view. Um, you are talking to a human being. You are teaching a human being. You are going to the play of a human being. You're going to the game of a human being who is an adolescent now and who will not be an adolescent very long. Um, so take the long view. When this person looks back um, in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, should that person be able to remember you, which they may not. Just like when you look back over your life, you can't recall the names of every single teacher you had. But should that young person remember you? Um, for what do you want the, the kid to remember you? There's an excellent chance uh, that you're not going to have had or been the, the bringer of one of those epiphanies to them. That's that's the, the 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 chances against that happening are pretty steep right um so while you're teaching the subject please remember to teach the student who's a person mm. who will not be a teenager forever yeah um think about the adult that is coming um and try to be present with that teenager in a way where that teenager will, when he or she cannot remember the formulas or the scansions or whatever else, remembers your presence. What was the quality and tone of that presence? Were you, were you helping that kid become a stronger human being um, than you first, than when the two of you first met? Not only by lecturing the kid. I, you know, I just mean by the total way of being. Yeah. Um, and that can, you know, at times that can, that can be a challenge, especially with all of the demands upon the teacher pressing in from the school, from the school district, from, um, I don't know, um, contractual, legal, other, you know, community, other kinds of uh, impingements. Uh, the, the great thing not to get swallowed up by is all of that and and to forget the particularity of this kid sitting in front of you um, right because the sum total of that over a career is is what's going to matter the most kids walk away i mean let's 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 face the fact many of us when we look back on our own educations we think back to subjects that we got excited about because the teacher was excited about it or because the teacher was excited about our possibilities. You know, we didn't believe in us and this teacher believed in us. And that began to turn the corner. We, we act sometimes as though education is about this massive intellectual, you know, undertaking, which, you know, very often it is. But quite frankly, a lot of it is, is, is academic drudgery. It's, it's studying for tests and it's studying for quizzes and it's cranking out reports that you don't want to write and essays mm -hmm. that you're not really interested in the subject matter. I mean, like, come on. Um, <laughs> but to be in a setting like that and to discover that there is, is a trustworthy adult that believes in us and not in some generic way 
but actually sees us. I mean, us, not not us as specimen, you know, exhibit A of high school student or exhibit A of undergraduate freshman year, but sees us yeah. um, as we are and is talking to us about who and what we are. As many times as we're able to do that, and we can't do that, frankly, all the time, but as many times as we can do that, that that person who's going to be a teenager briefly is probably going to grow up into a stronger adult. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that's I think that's a huge part of being involved in this at all. Again, I'm not taking anything away. I'm absolutely not taking anything away from being fanatically committed to our subject areas, um, which is what we have come to love so deeply. Um, right. As long as we don't love that only. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Which is very easy to do because in a lot of cases, that's why we got into that's the gig. What, that's why we got into it. I laugh when I, I think back in junior high school to a to two teachers who tried to teach uh, us junior high school students uh, William Wordsworth um, um, uh, sub, uh, what is the, the poem is uh, and then my heart would uh, surprised by joy is probably what it is uh, no 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 not surprised by joy it's a it's a poem about daffodils oh I wandered lonely as a thank cloud thank you thank you I <laughs> wandered lonely as a cloud can you imagine this um, these two good people <laughs> a man and a woman stand up and I in terms of technique, I cannot understand what would have possessed them to try to do this. They tried to teach to seventh and eighth grade um, boys and girls, especially with the boys there. This right. poem, I wandered lonely as a as a cloud, which <laughs> concludes with the line, and then my heart would pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Well, I wanted. <laughs> tell you that I'm real clear even to this day that as an eighth grade boy sitting there listening to Dancing with the Daffodils it wasn't <laughs> working. It was right. not working. <laughs> right. Was not landing. <laughs> and yet um, as a uh, as a college freshman uh, rereading that poem I experienced great delight both in the technical skill right. uh, the diction uh, the images um, and the like. So it's it's good to love what we love, but sure. it's good to <laughs> love yeah. the student too. Right, right, right. And recognize what is actually possible in that moment, <laughs> which there is a very limited range of, of possibility, but it's your job is to identify what that possibility is. There you go. I love that. All right, well, to, to finish things off, I have a, a little bit of a challenge for you if you are currently feeling up for a challenge. Please. Okay, great. So what I'd like to have you do is capture your essence as an educator. Think of it as kind of pitching yourself as an educator, in a sense, to the best of your ability in 30 seconds. Sort of whatever comes to mind. I have a, a, a timer that I will throw up on, uh, I'll throw your way. Um, yeah, anything comes to mind doesn't have to be beautiful or articulate or hopefully accurate, um, but that's what I would like you to do. Does that seem doable? That's doable. 
Okay, great. So I'm going to throw uh, the 30 seconds on the clock, and we will start in 3, 2, 1, go. Especially in the classroom, I want to be a person who asks tough questions and then follows them up with more tough questions. Uh, not ones that are on content so much, but rather on the nature and the heart of the person that I'm speaking with. The other thing I very much want to do is to be present to my students in a way that they can feel that presence. Oh, there you go. You have a couple seconds to spare. Awesome. So what I'd like you to do now is the same thing, but I'd like you to do it in 10 seconds to the best of your ability. So the exact same thing, but in 10 seconds. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right. 10 seconds on the clock, and you'll start in three, two, one, go. I would love to be able to be present with my students to both ask them tough questions and live with them while they try to answer them. Perfect. Now what I would like you to do is capture your essence as an educator to the best of your ability in just one single word. Ready? I am. Love. That's perfect. I love that. I love that. That's why we do what we do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Russell. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to speak with speak with me. Um, I knew that you would have a lot of wonderful things to say, and um, I wish this podcast were two hours because I could very easily listen to uh, your ruminations on education for another hour. So I really appreciate you uh, giving so much of your time and being so thoughtful with your responses. And uh, thank you also for the opportunity to do this, and more broadly, uh, thank you for opening up the space uh, so that other people might be encouraged by what they hear to go on doing what they do. Oh, thank you. It's very kind of you to say. All right. Thank you a lot, Russell. Take care. Take care of yourself. My thanks once again go out to Russell. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay. Our associate producer is Emily Moeller. Our cover art is by Katie Cooper. And our theme music is You Need a Visa by Really From. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode featuring another teacher and another story.